This is Urban Echoes, Episode 2. In this episode, Mr. B tells us about being a teacher in London while remembering his childhood in India. You know, you're never bored in the job, I'll tell you that. You're never... You're never... <laughs> you're never short of um, interesting events. I'm a secondary school English teacher in inner city London. I moved from India to the UK about 13 years ago been living there on and off for the last 13 years. I've lived in various different parts of the UK from, you know, the southwest to the north to the central bit for a little bit to the Midlands. Um, I've been doing this job for about the last, uh, I haven't been doing it continuously, but in total I think I've been doing the job for about six years now, roughly, on and off. And the school that, that I work in very large inner city school it's about 1400 plus students 11 to 18 so like year 7 all the way up to year 13 it's 76 percent pupil premium which means there's quite a lot of students there from economically deprived backgrounds so it's challenging the school that I'm in at the moment, they did they did fail an Ofsted inspection a couple of years ago. So it was like a week before I joined, they had an Ofsted inspection and <clears throat> they were put into special measures, which is the lowest category. And it basically meant that the school had to be taken over by an academy chain as part of the legal process if you if you get that grading and then, you know, move on from that point. But then at that stage, because there were so many gaps in how the curriculum was being, I really hate the word delivered, so I don't want to say delivered, but, you know, the way the curriculum was being conducted in the school, I think overall the students definitely felt that there were some shortcomings. Behaviour was a real challenge as well, because behaviour was not being managed effectively. We had very weak whole school policies on behaviour. We had very weak whole school policies on measuring attainment as well. We had very weak whole school policies on holding staff accountable for what they were doing and how they were applying um, strategies in the classroom to help students actually attain at their best level possible and I think kids are very perceptive so I think I think they did understand that there was an issue in the school I don't think they knew what the problem was I don't think they had the language or the understanding necessarily to articulate that you know this is what the problem is but I think they definitely felt that the teaching wasn't adequate the support wasn't adequate but I think now a couple of years on from that, I think they realise that there is an expectation from teachers as well. So we've had students communicate far more uh, recently than, than in the past when they would like certain things to be done in lessons. I don't think they necessarily know the pressure that we're under all the time. I don't think they necessarily know... Um, they feel it, no? Well, they feel it in ways that they might not 
realize but they yeah so like for example if a teacher is exhausted because of their workload and they're you know they're a little bit burnt out at the end of a week or the end of a term or something similar that will change how a teacher behaves in lessons they might be a little bit more cranky they might be a little bit more well a little bit less tolerant that might affect the way a student is learning and they will feel that something is not quite you know right and it's there's there's something inconsistent about that particular lesson they won't necessarily know it's because the teacher's been you know marking whatever 100 books uh, throughout the course of that week or there's some sort of data analysis deadline or there's some sort of you know um whole school thing that's happening that's been taking up all of the teacher's time or whatever else but they'll they'll feel that there's something wrong in the lesson yeah so at the point of delivery they'll know something's up Okay, guys, in a second, I would like you to actually discuss your ideas. So can you spend uh, just 10 seconds really quickly finishing up your sentences and be ready to share your ideas on your table? Okay, so in five, four, three, two, one. Um, I think that right is really easy. You were telling me about new behaviour policies. Yeah, I was, I was quite shocked by certain behavioural policies that were implemented in your school? I actually think the behavioural policies are good now, how they stand. So when we when we failed the Ofsted inspection, a few months after that, uh, the head teacher at the time tried this whole radical approach of changing how behaviour was managed in the school, and part of that system was to have a warning system where students were given... I think it was I think it was two warnings and then on the third one they'd be sent out of the lesson. So and the premise was that you could the students could be given a warning for anything. So if you came into lesson without a pen, for example, that would be a warning. If you showed up two minutes late to the lesson, that would be a warning. If your shirt was untucked because they wanted really sort of a strict um, uniform policy as well, that would be a warning. And the list goes on, you know. And so, and on the third warning, they'd be sent out and they'd, they'd spend 24 hours in isolation, which is, you know, they're not in contact with the rest of the student body. And you'd have a senior member of staff. It's really odd, this kind of... Uh, they, they'd read the, the school rules and the expectations, and they'd do that, I think, about a dozen times a day. So, like, every half an hour, there would be a member of staff whoever was on duty, they'd be reading out from a list of rules. They'd be saying something along the lines of, you have not followed the expectations of the school. You have, um, you know, let down the expectations and whatever, whatever, whatever. It was a big, big long speech that they'd have. <laughs> and yeah, and, and so that was, that seemed really draconian. And I, I actually hated that policy because it was, it was so stupid that to sanction someone who had maybe made an honest mistake and just forgotten their pen or, you know, just had their shirt untucked or whatever, who'd um, accidentally forgotten to spit their chewing gum out before coming into the lesson or something similar, to someone who, you know, picked up a chair and threw it across the room, they would have the same sanction. And I don't think that's, that's fair. And also, obviously, you know, parents were quite upset about this as well. And it was just saying, you know, so because my son or daughter or whatever has forgotten to bring equipment or turned up 30 seconds later lesson they get to miss out on a whole day's worth of learning how is that logical and it, and it, and it wasn't logical it was it was quite rubbish actually i'd say it was pretty shit
At the time, because one of the biggest things that Ofsted had said to us was that we weren't managing behavior effectively. So the head teacher decided to put this really radical policy in place. But it wasn't, I don't think it was done with the best understanding of how it would be implemented in lessons. Because there was praise as well for the students and what they were doing, but I just don't think, yeah, I don't think it was thought through very well. Initially, it was just relief. Initially, it was just, you know, great, this is nice. But then as soon as we began to evaluate the policy, like a couple of weeks in, uh, we realized, or at least most of the staff, or a lot of the staff, I should say, realized that it had some real big drawbacks and, and it wasn't fair. Uh, I know I didn't apply the policy in, in my lessons as as much as you know was expected of me because I did think it was unfair to send a student out for things that you know were so minor and I didn't think it was it was um, fair that they'd miss out on a whole day's worth of education because of that I mean one of the one of the things you know is that when you when you're having a class discussion um, the policy stated that no one no student should be calling out the answer they should put their hands up or you can just wait until the teacher picks on them to, to speak but kids get excited don't they if they, if they know something they want to share something um, and they might just speak out of turn I don't want to give them a warning for that because that's essentially communicating to them that you know their ideas can only be expressed in a particular way that should conform to my expectations of how it should be done and I, I don't think that's completely fair I think in those situations if you just tell the student alright look I appreciate what you're trying to say just wait your turn because we're trying to be respectful to the person who is trying to express their idea or just work around it in a way that isn't as harsh as what the school policy was, was demanding I think that would be much more effective no problem alright come on folks we got six well seven minutes left on this task some of you are doing what you're meant to, some of you are playing around with your fidget toys and whatever else. Can you please focus on the task? Okay, fair enough. I'm liking the focus on that table there. Looks good. So I do think there is a, there is a point in, in managing behaviour, but I don't think there's a point in being draconian. I don't think there's a point in being so punitive and, and, and so heavy on your sanctions that you completely remove any personality from the school. And at that time, it really felt as if the personality of the students was being totally subdued. You know, it, 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 it felt very much like, this is very hyper, hyperbolic obviously, but it, it, it kind of did feel a bit like a prison system in a, in a, in a, in a way, a little bit. But we changed that. And the, as soon as the new academy took us over, the, the, the regional head made it a point to, to change the behaviour system from day one. Okay. So we're just sort of planning uh, the response here a little bit. Any questions? No? We good? Okay, ten minutes then, folks. Focused, uh, purposeful writing, please. Yeah, go on. Yeah, I'll do it. I love kids with personality. I love kids with a bit of character. I love, my, my favourite classes are always... Um, you know, the ones that aren't really shy about expressing their opinions. Because I actually want these these guys to grow up and actually sort of push people's buttons and question stuff and, and, and not just accept things because that's how things are. No, why? Why the fuck would you do that? We we don't do that as adults. Uh, I mean, you know, if, if, if we think critically about stuff, it, it's kind of, it should be part of our nature 
to question things and to and to and to provoke meaningful responses. My job is essentially not to. I think it's not to dampen that or to reduce that. It's to it's to focus it where it needs to be focused. An hour and twenty five minutes is a long time for a child to just be sitting and doing exactly what you want them to do. Of course they're gonna talk. Of course they're gonna fidget a little bit. Of course they're gonna you know. Like, I allow some of them to even just get up and take a little walk around the classroom because, you know, I don't, and I wouldn't like to sit in one place for, like, an hour and 25 minutes, let alone one of those really hard, uncomfortable plastic chairs that they sit on with, with no cushions, you know. It's not nice. So so that's not what my expectations are in the classroom anyway. Particularly, you know, in places like London, because there's such a, there's a, such a focus on behaviour. There's such a focus on problem kids and troubled kids. I think there's a whole mythology about kids and teenagers being troublemakers and, and, and you know, this whole mythology about them uh, not really conforming to societal expectations and society's rules and things like that. I think we're obsessed as a bit of a culture uh, in trying to, you know, control kids' behaviour rather than direct it in, 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 in more meaningful pursuits. And I think that's one of the flaws of, of British culture in, in particular, as far as the schooling system is concerned, I don't think I don't think we try and understand the kids all that much. Yeah, you can leave. You can leave your book here. That's fine. You can leave your book on that shelf. That's absolutely fine. Thank you. Miss. I can Sorry. feel my end of my life in India. It was a little bit more extreme, I guess. The processes of control, the the way in which um, teachers actually managed behaviour was. Well, I don't really I don't really think you can call it behavior management really it was something entirely different I so I went I went to one of these um, la-di-da private schools in Kolkata which were they I mean they basically sustained themselves on years of reputation as soon as I got to an age where I could think about it quizzically I realized that it was all just a massive front you can have all the qualifications to do with your subject you know you can be a master of this and a king of that and a queen of whatever but unless you know how to teach, unless you know how to make that accessible to kids in a meaningful way and engage them and build positive relationships with them and actually motivate them, I, I think you're a pretty shit teacher. And we had some horrible shit teachers. They knew their stuff. They were very qualified in terms of, you know, whatever their subject was. But as far as teaching was concerned, they were very ineffective. The majority of them, the vast majority of them, were very ineffective. And when you have ineffective teachers you're going to see more behavior issues obviously because the kids know that um, the teaching isn't isn't effective if a child can't access the material that's being covered in the lesson how do you think the child feels obviously they feel upset obviously they feel frustrated obviously they feel impatient and they feel bored so if the lesson isn't being differentiated properly for the entire class you're going to have people acting out because that's the only thing that's going to that's going to be meaningful to them at that point. The lesson isn't certainly meaningful. Oh, you know, for in terms of behavior, in terms of trying to shape my behavior or change my behavior, there was everything tried from the teachers, you know, <laughs> blatant name calling, um, slapping across the face or sort of uh, hitting with rulers uh, in terms of a punishment. Caning was done by usually the, the vice principal 
because I think he's the only one that had the cane. I'm not really sure, but <laughs> but I I was I was caned a couple of times. Yeah, and like bizarre punishments. So there was there were like punishments where the teachers would make me stand at the back of the class, uh, holding a textbook and ask ask me to read it quietly to myself. And I used to just think, well, obviously I'm not. So what is the purpose of this? It's just it's just a waste of my time. And so obviously I wouldn't do the punishment, which would then lead to bigger punishments, da da da. I think it made me very resilient, for sure. I think it gave me an appreciation for for just how independent I needed to be. It was also fun being in an Indian school. Like it was it was the one that I was in for a while, it was quite fun. It taught me it taught me so much about human relationships actually. It taught me a lot about human relationships and how human beings work and, and it taught me to be perceptive. And those are things you don't learn on the curriculum, you learn because of the environment. And I think the environment that it provided was so competitive but also you know where you had to be really resilient otherwise you wouldn't really make it or you, you had to read situations really well otherwise you wouldn't really make it i mean it was it was ridiculous if you think about it four and a half thousand students in a school all boys it's an intense situation it's not it's not the easiest to actually live your adolescent life in where did you discover whiskey uh, when I was six, my dad gave me some. Obviously, didn't start drinking then, but yeah. So, growing up in Kolkata, of doing my education in Kolkata, there was a big sort of. There was a real skewed opinion that people had of the arts in Kolkata people really didn't consider the arts to be something that you do in school unless you're not very academically capable. And there was, it was a huge gender thing as well going into it because I went to an all-boys school. So if you, if you did the arts as a, as a boy, as a man, or you know, if you had an interest in it, 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 was, it, was, it was seen as being highly unusual. Because the arts were always considered, you know, back then, and possibly even now, I don't know, but back then certainly, it was considered very much female territory, and it was considered a girly thing. And the reason it was considered a girly thing is because it, it wasn't seen as being the most employable, or the most um, financially viable. And being a highly gendered society, I think the expectation was that women who did arts wouldn't necessarily need to have any sort of a career. When you say mm. it was mainly a girl thing to do literature and arts in general, but literature, when you studied in England, you were surrounded by women as well. It was 90% female. Not at, not at school. Not at school. I think, I think there were maybe 12 of us doing uh, literature at the college where I was studying. I think about half of that number were boys. And, and half were girls and, and um, fairly mixed in terms of, you know, our backgrounds and what we had studied up until that point. University was more divisive, I think. And yeah, I was, I think, probably one of 20 or 30 
guys on the course out of maybe maybe 200 250 ish my life in india is so separate than the one here but i kind of like that i think it's you know it's a whole different scene that i think it's it's very hard for anyone to actually appreciate what it's like unless they've grown up there i never i never wanted to be a teacher when i was a kid i never wanted to be a teacher when i was a kid i never imagined myself doing this job you know it wasn't something that i grew up thinking wow this is going to be like my dream you know occupation or my dream this is my life's purpose no it wasn't like that at all i mean when i was a teenager i wanted to be a musician you know when i was when I, in terms of like i played guitar when i was a kid right and and then going like through my teen years i played guitar but i was fucking useless i was i mean i was i, I knew how to play like a few things but definitely not you know and then i was i was drifting for a bit like i was lost for a while i i i, I don't all i knew is i i quite enjoy reading books you know, i enjoy literary theory cultural theory philosophy you know things of that nature and how it finds an application in english you know all that flouncy waffly bullshit that people say and have said over the years that really attracted me so yeah but i i never really wanted to apply that to teaching that was an accident even up until about like 5 years ago i didn't think necessarily that, that was what i wanted to do the pgce seemed to be interesting teaching seemed to be interesting i had been working in a school for a couple of years before that in a private school in a in an independent college actually the same one i went to in london and um it was there that i kind of you know it was like ah oh, cool like it it seems like an interesting occupation it seems like you know something that that can actually be an option for me after my first public exams in kolkata it was a bit of a shit show in terms of Why my so? well some of that stuff that i was that i mentioned before in terms of like the gendered nature of the subjects and sort of the expectations that people have of uh, how the arts doesn't really lead to much employability and all of that um i guess my mom thought the same way i guess she thought that it would benefit me to do science and and maths and that sort of thing. I can completely sort of see her point in why she would think that, but I think uh there was also a little bit of a lack of acknowledgement I think on her part where I was coming from and what I wanted to do with my life and you know and what I wanted to what I wanted to study because I was really really keen on doing it and I was really into it and I was really motivated to actually actually study English. And I think there was just I, I don't think she understood that or I don't think she really understood why I would want to or I don't think she understood what careers it could lead to or even what the purpose of that is I think she very much thought well you can read books in your free time why do you need to you know actually study it so it was um yeah so it was interesting going into the um the last two years of my schooling with with that um sort of pressure from home and um yeah so when when my when my results came out from the from the first public exams mom sort of pushed me into doing the the sciencey stuff and i hated it i absolutely hated it i had no interest in doing it i had no interest in being there and it was it was just it was it was it got to a point where it was ridiculous it got to a point where they called my mom in at the school and 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 i think it was the the vice principal I had a chat with her and said okay look 
clearly your son is not going to actually pass the end of your exams. So should we consider, you know, the alternative options? And my mum, it was only at that time that she kind of relented a little bit and had a chat with me and said, okay, so what, what is it exactly that you want to do in that case? And I was like, ah, so we're having this conversation like six months later, then it was necessary, but all right, cool. At least we're having the conversation now. And then, I don't know, I, I guess I was able to make my point for doing English. And that was that. I, I switched from the Indian board school to an international school. Six months after that, I was in the UK. PGC was in a major southwestern city. How did that go? Shit, it was horrible. Well, no, it was it was it was a huge black stain on my on my life <laughs> for for the for the nine months that I that I did it, and you know it's the sort of stain that seeps through the layers of your existence and really colours your soul, really. From, I would say from around mid-April um, that year all the way up until about July the end of July that year was horrible it was a nightmare it was absolutely ridiculous um, I'd already had a job lined up in London as an NQT obviously I lost that placement um, my visa at the time was which was a, um, a student visa was expiring and so there was a whole bunch of legal issues that I had to go through you know eventually ended up hiring a lawyer to, to get me out of that situation, which was a hell of a lot of money that was spent. And it was completely unnecessary because when I then took a, a year and a, yeah, like a year and a half probably off from, from teaching. And when I resumed the PGCE, you know, I hadn't been around teaching at all. I hadn't been in the classroom. I hadn't observed any lessons. I hadn't done anything. But then when I went, when I went back into the classroom, I was observed within the first week of this last placement and my university mentor came and said ah oh, wow so you've clearly worked on a whole bunch of different things and you've clearly put in a lot of effort and you've clearly shown some massive signs of improvement in your teaching in this in this lesson and you're hitting all the teaching standards really well da, da, da. I was just thinking well well fuck me then your measurement system is completely broken because I haven't done anything differently now than what I did in my last placement that I failed it's probably just the fact that I'm far less stressed now and I'm far less under the cosh but apart from that, really, my style hasn't changed, my approach hasn't changed, my understanding of what's expected of me hasn't changed. Yeah.
Yeah. I mean, the way you measure success on the course is completely defective and it, it doesn't work. And I think, I think it puts people off teaching. I think that's the sort of thing that puts people off teaching. a moral purpose in actually working in a state school I do think actually these are the kids that that it matters the most to make education accessible for them and to actually add value to their lives and to actually increase their attainment and therefore their opportunities in later life I think people from certain backgrounds are very underrepresented so we have like 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 I've said before you know 76% people premium but we also I think it's over 90% Muslim population, first-generation immigrants, some second-generation immigrants, you know, so very, very marginalized communities. And I think to get people from those communities into mainstream education, in higher education, and then into affluent jobs, and to try and kickstart upward social mobility for a lot of these guys, I think that's a really good incentive to actually work in state schools like this one in particular. And I think that does give it a very solid moral purpose. And I think that's what I like about it. And I think that's what I appreciate the most about the job at the moment. I don't think you'd necessarily get that in private school because there's a very particular background that private schools obviously are accessible to. The moral purpose of working in a, in a private school is probably that the kids there come from more central positions in society, right? So they hold more power. They hold more status. Their families hold more power and status as well. And so actually to try and switch them onto social issues and to try and get them to use that power in a way that's beneficial for society, I think that's the moral purpose of working in private schools. So it depends what you actually want to be spending your energy on, whether you'd like to raise attainment and opportunities and affluence for people from marginalised communities or those who haven't traditionally had as many opportunities or those or if you want to spend your time trying to not influence but expose people from very affluent backgrounds and, and from high status and high power backgrounds as to some of the positive impacts that they could have in society. Um, so would you say that because of the diversity existing in your school, the fact that some students actually you know, have very interesting discussions with you on the material, would you say that this same diversity is actually a factor of, for challenging uh, the existing material that British schools are offering to students? It is very prescriptive. There's, there's no getting around that. I think, I think the curriculum at all sort of levels of education in the UK, as, well, especially as far as English is concerned, I think it's quite prescriptive. There was this guy, the infamous Michael Gove, who was the Education Secretary in 2013 when I was doing my PGCE, and he passed the policy that year that um, the texts being taught at GCSE must be traditionally British texts. So all these schools that have been doing Off Mice and Men, uh, Steinberg, for years and years and years, they were suddenly panicking. They were going, oh, shit, we need to find you know traditional British texts and whatever, whatever. So it is, yeah, no, it is prescriptive. It is, it is extremely prescriptive in terms of, um, in terms of the material. We do, we do study context as well, so we learn a, a little bit about the socio-historical side of texts when we, when we cover the material. And I think, depending on where your interests lie in the subjects, I think you can 
access it in in very meaningful ways. Yeah, it'd be nice to see a bit more freedom in terms of the curriculum in in earlier years, particularly for GCSE. It'd be nice. And I think we're missing a trick. Actually, as a country, I think we're missing a trick because English isn't just the territory of the British. You know, we have people from all sorts of um, backgrounds writing in English and and using English to express themselves and considering the Brits fucking conquered half the world at some point, you know, administratively or militarily, I think it'd be nice for the Brits to give other voices an opportunity to come in and actually acknowledge the fact that English act is 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 being used all over the world for meaningful expression. I think I think kids having that understanding as well, growing up, I think it would really appeal to them. Especially if you're like a first generation Sudanese immigrant in, in the hearts of London. How great would it be to actually know that there is someone out there who represents you? Or if you're a Moroccan, Algerian, whatever, you've just come over to the country, like it's been less than 10 years that you're here, how great would it be to read about a wonderful Moroccan or an Algerian writer who's actually said some stuff that you can connect with? How much more are you going to keep reading about Charles fucking Dickens? That's that's all I mean, right? This guy, he was great. He was he was amazing. He was he was a great storyteller. He was a, you know, you know, quite the party host. But there's there's only so much that a child in 2019 cosmopolitan London. There's only so much that he's going to or she's going to identify with Charles Dickens. choice not to join a union I don't I don't know I mean it's not it's not something I consciously was for or against I just think unions in the academy chain that I work in are quite ineffective I don't think they achieve much you know I I completely agree with the principle of unions and I think workers' rights should be protected and I think there should be representation for workers in, in any sort of workplace but I think the structure that we have in school at the moment makes them quite ineffective and it's semi-private really if you think about it I mean academies function on a semi-independent kind of basis I mean they're still funded by the local authority but then there's um, there's no accountability for how those funds are spent I mean there is accountability but not to the local authority as much as say, a local authority school. And within that structure, I think it's very difficult to actually, you know, change things via unionism. But that's a choice, I guess, that people make to work in that environment. If you if you have been part of a school like I have, where it gets academized, 
after you started working there, then you can still um, you still have the option of sticking to your old contract. You don't need to necessarily change to the academy contract, and if you do that, then you have a few more rights, I suppose. Or <clears throat> at least your rights as a worker are represented in a different way via the old contract, and I think that's potentially a way around it, but then obviously if you've chosen to work in an academy which has an existing academy structure then, or you know, if you've chosen to work in a school that has an ex- existing academy structure, then I suppose the, the, the best thing you can do is just be aware of the reputation of the chain and what they ask workers to do and, and then sort of make an informed choice as to whether that's something you would like to engage with or not. I think that's a bit more effective than going into it blind and expecting the unions to actually uphold your rights because they won't, I mean, they, they will try, but they can't really. I'm also aware that this is just from a teaching perspective and all from a very specific perspective of working in an academy. I think unions can work in local authority schools. I think unions can work in other professions very well, and I think they have and I think they do. As far as I'm concerned, as far as my personal position in the workplace is, I don't think unions will really benefit me that much. And what will, then? Well, it's a good question, because I am overworked, that's for sure. I spend most of my evenings and weekends in one way or another involved with my work. It is difficult sometimes to maintain a balance between that and everything else that I do, and my personal life, and, uh, you know, my own pursuits, as it were. I don't really know what a good solution is, I think. Well, in an ideal world, I guess, there would be a restructuring of the nature of the role of teachers. I think there would be more funding available, so school sizes would be slightly more manageable, or you'd have certainly a, a better staff-to-student ratio, which would actually be very beneficial for the kids as well. I mean, every, everything that's beneficial for teachers in terms of improving their working conditions would ultimately be beneficial for the students. I think more effective government policies would be a good thing. And I think there there definitely needs to be some sort of uh, pressure to make the government improve those 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 policies with with regards to education. And I know that what I'm saying here is, you know, <laughs> I mean that's one of the remits of a union, for example. That's what that's what they would do. But I just feel like there's a there's a huge divide between insider and outsider pressure groups and 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 what they can achieve. So it's a, it's a it's a difficult question. I I don't really claim to have any solution to it. I'm from a Marxist state in India, you know, a state that's been Marxist for like 30 plus years. They very recently voted a slightly more centrist party. So it's West Bengal, you know. So I'm from a culture that very much believes in unions and the power of unions, believes in striking, believes in direct action, believes in all that sort of, yeah, a collectivization of the experience of being a worker. But I've seen, you know, I mean, again, it's such a different world. You know, West Bengal, it's, it's, it's been plagued by corruption, it's been plagued by cronyism and violence and really divisive party politics. So unions, you know, to a certain extent, 
then began to represent the ineffectiveness of government. Really, they achieved very little, I'll be honest, in West Bengal in terms of affecting any real change. Not really. It's made worse by the bureaucracy, which exists. And uh, But then looking at, looking at the UK, I think in certain areas, employment rights are very well protected in comparison. But then I think in, with regards to any public sector job like teaching, nursing, um, police work, etc., etc., I think the expectation is that the moral duty that the workers possess is sufficient to get them through the hard working conditions. But I think that's unfair. I think it's, I, I don't think there's any nobility or any nobleness in sacrificing yourself totally for your job just because your job is morally good and morally effective because ultimately what that does is it creates a situation where a lot of very effective teachers, nurses, police workers, etc, etc, etc just burn out they can't sustain themselves in those professions no matter how much they want to I just feel that the, the current model that we have is ineffective the thing where the union can be effective actually is in changing the focus on what it means to be a successful teacher and actually within within the academy chain that I work something that they do which I'm actually quite in favor of is they have uh, what they call lead practitioners a large body of teachers who are experienced have outstanding results to back them up and you know have had observations where they have been classified as being good and effective at their job they get to decide, to a large extent, how they want to evaluate the success of the other teachers in the school. So I think that's more of a um, reintegrated approach where your success is judged by those of a similar standing, so your peers essentially, but the sort of exemplary versions of your peers. And I think that is effective, and I think that is good to a certain extent. But again, these people will not represent you or cannot represent you legally if you have any difficulties in the, in the, in the workplace. And I think there is, there is a very legitimate argument to be had about, about that. And I think, for example, with things like sick pay or medical leave or if you, if you have an allegation raised against you as a teacher by a student or, or you know, by another member of staff or whatever it is, I think that's where union representation becomes very important. I've known members of staff, for example, there was a lady last year who had a miscarriage, um, which was largely attributed to the pressures of the job and to the stress of being a teacher. And it's actually not uncommon for women to miscarry because of the stresses of the job. And that's, that's, that's something that just happens in this, in this profession that no one really talks about, but it does. And she was dealt with very unsympathetically by some of the upper management and I think that's where a union is absolutely necessary or some sort of representation at least is absolutely necessary because you don't necessarily have the means to fund legal battle yourself and I think she felt or she talked to me a little bit about it and she said that she just felt that the whole thing was, was dealt with very very badly but then the way or the, the form in which the union exists in our school, I don't think it would have made any difference to her.
situation. There needs to be some sort of restructuring or reorganization of that body that is meant to protect workers' rights and, and, and working conditions. Because it often goes into really abstract realms like that now. I mean, to what extent can you actually hold your work accountable? You know, there are there are there's a legal requirement for upper management to ask you if a day off that you've taken from work is due to uh, mental stress or due to due to conditions to do with your job. But I'm not really sure what happens when you say yes, or if you say yes. I'm not really sure what the process is then to support you. So do you think people are actually scared to say that because they don't really know what would that imply? Yeah, that I think imply? for sure. I think that I think that might be yeah. Because I've I've been in that position a few times when I've woken up and I've just thought I'm I'm mentally and emotionally exhausted and I've gone in and I've done my job and that's fine. But I wonder I don't know what the answer is here, but I wonder what what the reaction would have been if I'd just gone in and said to them, Look, I'm not doing that well here. Yeah, I wonder what the reaction would have been. I mean, I know there's support plans and this and that, but often support plans is, is, is a cold word for making things a little bit more difficult for you than it needs to be at work. Yeah, I'm not really sure what that would have led to. But equally, I think, I think a lot of experienced teachers don't help because they, they've been doing the job so long and... and, and a lot of them are very, very competent at their job. I think a lot of them are immune to some of the things that less experienced teachers are not immune to. And every time I've spoken to someone who is quite experienced, I've, I've or most of the times I've had, um, you know, different versions of the same reply, which is uh, essentially saying. Just stick it out, be better at your job, and it'll work out. But what if it doesn't? Or or they'll hit you with a version of, um, oh, it doesn't seem to affect me. It's fine. Well, good for you, but you know, I deal with things differently maybe than you do. So yeah, it's not always that easy. I do think I do think that I do think that we need to be more much more open in our profession 
about some of the stresses and difficulties that we face. I think we need to be a lot more open about our mental health as professionals. I think we need to be a lot more open about the fact that all of us, regardless of whether we've been doing it two years or 20 years, you know, we face certain challenges that we need genuine support with, not this bullshit, you know, namesake support system that actually is a convoluted way of making our lives even harder. And I think it's it's a bit of a shame that that hasn't really happened because we're so accountable for everything that we do. We are so accountable for every decision we make and every um, policy we try and implement as teachers. I think some of that accountability should extend to the school as well, as far as staff well-being is concerned. I think staff well-being is the main thing that unions should be representing, but there's a lack of that. Favorite part of being a teacher? Being in the classroom. I love it. Uh, it doesn't really matter whether it's um, young class, old class, whatever. I love being with around the kids in the classroom and just um, seeing their eyes light up when they get an idea where they've really genuinely put in an effort and they recognize that they've put in an effort and you recognize that they've put in an effort and everyone's really proud of each other because you know they've done they've done something in, 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 in the best way possible <laughs> Yeah, the funniest thing, I guess, you know, there's so many. In my first week on the job, a kid gave me a little drawing with a police line, do not cross, kind of, you know, yellow tape and a knife covered in blood. And um, I was teaching the lesson at the front of the class. She came up to me without a word, just tapped me on the, um, on the arm and then gave me this. And I was thinking, ah, okay. So great, so this is a massive safeguarding issue within my first week of teaching here. But it turns out they'd been doing Macbeth and, and she was just um, <laughs> expressing something from the, from the play. You know, you're never bored in the job, I'll tell you that much. You're never, you're never, <laughs> you're never short of um, interesting events. <laughs> 